So this interview is being conducted for the Robert Bearden Digital Catalog Resume Project. The interviewer is Kamara Holloway. The person being interviewed is Deirdre Harris-Kelly. And the interview is taking place at the offices of the Wildenstein Plattner Institute in New York City on October 13th, 2021. So welcome, Deirdre. Thank you. Yeah. So first of all, can you tell us who Romare Bearden was? To me. Well, in general, to everyone, like, why should we be interested in him? Well, he's one of the innovators of visual arts of the 20th century um, and of African-American art. Um, Very experimental with um, a series of media that, um, you know, primarily was collage, but also oil on canvas. Um, printmaking, um, watercolor, and um, he often depicted uh, African-American culture. And so um, you get a lot of themes of music through his work, particularly jazz music. You get themes of family, home, um, rural South, which is where he was born, um, and New York, and Pittsburgh, and um, I think... You know, he appeals to a lot of people because of his depictions of life um, in African-American American life, um, a lot of street scenes, um, and he's just a beloved artist, you know, for color and his experimentation, I believe, yeah. And he lived a long time, you know, born in 1911 in um, segregated North Carolina, Charlotte at the time, and um moved then um, as a young boy to New York, um, spent some time in Pittsburgh, and um, he didn't pass away until 1988. So he did a lot of work, um, produced a lot, uh, and also worked as a social worker. So he lived a lot of life. Um, He was very active um, as an activist um, artist in the 60s. So he got involved with a lot of the um, movements um, to increase representation in museums. Uh, he was very interested in education. Uh, we've formed cu- curriculum around his ideas. He co-authored several books. Um, and so I think his uh, legacy is of an artist who um, was very generous and um, involved and in moving art. Um, Okay. mm -hmm. And so how are you connected to Bearden? I'm connected to Bearden right now um, as the co-director of the Romeo Bearden Foundation. But um, the way that I got connected to that is through the founder of the um, Bearden Foundation, who's Nanette Bearden, Romeo's wife and widow. And um, I did... I was fortunate enough to grow up in the family and to know Bearden as a child. And um, he and Nanette didn't have kids, so we actually got to spend time in the city um, with them because we all grew up on Staten Island. Okay. So Nanette was one of eight girls born to two immigrants from St. Martin in the Caribbean, the French Caribbean. And she was second to elder, eldest. And um, so she was doing 
various things outside. She was a model. Um, she started a dance company. And so by the time Bearden passed away in 1988, um, she was very active in a lot of um, scenes and a lot doing a lot with her dance company. And um, she took on starting the foundation because it was something that Bearden had willed and wanted to happen. And so I came along about 1994. So, so she started it in 1990. And I came along in about 1994, just a couple of years before she passed away. And um, I was returning to New York with my family. Um, I had a young daughter at the time, and we had moved back to New York. I say back because both my ex-husband and I are both from New York originally, but we've been in California and Michigan and um, Atlanta, North Carolina. We had been to a lot of different cities, and we were finally returning to New York. And um, I had finished graduate school. I got my MFA at University of Michigan, and done a little bit in my studio in Michigan before moving here. And so I opened a studio here in New York, um, down on White Street by Canal. And um, and then I started teaching at NYU. I got just a you know, adjunct gig, um, teaching in painting and drawing, and, um, and you know, was about to be an artist, I guess, <laughs> was out to try to be a professional artist. And, uh, but I had a young daughter, so it was, you know, it was challenging. Um, and then Nanette was, you know, asking me to be on the board, and I felt like I definitely needed to help and, and be involved. And, um, and so I, became a board member for a little while, and then I, I stepped off the board, and I was doing um, various jobs with the foundation before becoming actually employed by the foundation in 2005. Okay. I just want to give you a little break. Yeah. Okay, because she had some questions. There. So, um, well, let's take a step back and mm -hmm. start about you growing up, you said that you were born in Staten Island, yep. and that's where your family yep. is from. What was it like growing up there? Well, I was born in the early 60s, 1962, and um, my family, um, you know, they were, you can imagine, okay, so eight girls born to this family, they were poor. Um, and my mother was born in 1932, so that's during the Depression, and so they didn't have a lot. Um, and so it was um, a very good, in a way, a good childhood, because even though we didn't have a lot, we had a lot of people. We had a lot of aunts, um, a lot of cousins, um, and so you always had people around you. You always had people to go to school with. <laughs> um, and I was the youngest of four. So my mother um, had four children. And since I was born, very soon after I was born, she separated from my father. So she was a single parent. Uh, she remained a single parent um, um, to this day. She's still alive. Um, she'll be 90 in January. But, you know, so it was, a, it was a little bit of a struggle, but the, the, the thing that I always say about my family is that um, they are responsible, really, for me going into the arts and feeling comfortable in the arts. Because, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, how, you know, how, how did you get to study art 
you know, didn't you worry about how much money you're going to make? <laughs> and you know, was was there pressure from your from your family? And there wasn't, you know. So this was a family where you had a dancer. One of my aunts, my um, youngest aunt Sheila, was a pro, um, a, um, a dancer with the first dance company of Dance Theatre of Harlem. And um, and she had three children while she was a dancer, but she had three children. So you that that's a testimony to the support that she had through the family um, and her husband. And um, and then you had Nanette who um, was interested in dance. She had shepherded Sheila through dance, um, her younger sister, and she was a model. And she was living in the city. She was living in you know those circles many circles, artistic circles, and, um, and many of my other aunts are creative um, folks, and um, you know, one is a quilter now. I mean, at the time, she was in nursing. And so this was a family that sort of accepted artists. Um, and so when I was younger and, um, and just drawing in the corner, um, they left me alone. You know, and and I have to credit them. I mean, having you know brought up my own child and really supported whatever she was doing, it's not easy um, to do that and to um, allow kids to have their own direction. But I, I will say that I, I credit that with the family that I grew up in and that there were artists there. Yeah. Um, and um, so it was, it was. Um, it was hard because we grew up in the projects of Staten Island. Now they're not the projects that they are today. They're not the, the like public housing developments that they are today. It was kind of nice. I, I hate to say use that term, but um, you know because there was there were communities um, created depending on what building you lived in, and then you were a community in a whole. And so um, so yeah, we were exposed to a lot of art. Um, my aunt, who was the dancer, she also was a part of the community on Staten Island that was involved in dance and arts and starting in, um, institutions. They had Universal Temple of the Arts, which still exists today, and they do jazz festivals and they do children's classes. And we had to do like African dance classes. They made us do all of that, right? Like we, we didn't have any say so. We were dragged around and they were like the Pied Pipers of Staten Island. And that was the community um, that I grew up in. And so, um, you know, the other thing that I've said many times over is that I saw these women as leaders, you know, in their community. And um, so I learned a lot about doing what you're called to do um, and then just um, always being open to the challenges. Because like I said, I came to New York thinking I was going to just have my own studio and, you know, paint and, you know, <laughs> and it didn't quite go like that. It was, I was called, I was pressed into service and called to do, um, you know, to work with the legacy, which is, you know, great. And, um, and so I learned a lot. I, I won't, you know, turn away from any of that. I think that I, um, you know, I tried to maintain a practice, um, but it was very hard. And it's kind of, it's a little daunting when you um, are faced with 
the legacy of knowing what Bearden did and, and what he was and what he meant to other artists and to the field um, to sort of um, not want to um, be in service to perpetuate that. So what else about growing up? Is that, yeah, are we still I mean, is your, is your, was your mother um, yes. artistically inclined? Yes. And my father was an artist, which I, um, I tend to uh, leave out often because I didn't have much of a relationship with him. But he was an artist. He was a painter. And, um, you know, the thing is, he was interested in the life of an artist. And he was a graphic designer for the most part, I think. And he made paintings, and um, Romare did try to talk to him, tried to help him. But you know, I found out later that he actually was involved with the person who ran Wells' um, restaurant, you know, Wells' waffle, chicken and waffle place. Um, he, was, he was friends with them, and at one point, my mother, and I took, I took her over there as an adult when she came to visit Harlem. And she went looking for the murals that he had done inside the restaurant, which I didn't know. I, I, this is great. <laughs> but um, he was also sort of one of those um, man about town kind of guy, you know, flashy, good looking, very, very good looking. He was in the service for a little while. But he was he was flashy. Like I remember, he wore flashy outfits, like like a um, a one piece green jumpsuit, which I'll never forget because <laughs> I was so embarrassed uh, when he showed up at a family function with this, like looking like a pimp, like a straight <laughs> hustler. But um, but he was. I mean, he was artistically inclined. But I do I tend to overlook him as an influence because. He also was hands off, you know. Um, I didn't live with him much as a young child, but when I did go to visit him, unlike Romare, his studio was off, you know, like you, you know, hands off. Kids can't go in that room. We couldn't play with his stuff. I didn't know. I didn't really know anything about what he was doing. It, but I know that he was working for a lot of magazines and doing, I don't know if you remember the um, magazine called Sepia. Yeah. He worked for that. Um, and he did, you know, graphic design. But um, he was not as generous as Romare. Um, I say that because as an artist, I know it's not easy to have people in your studio, not to have little kids in your studio messing up stuff. And, um, and I know that he really was genuinely, I think, interested in what we thought. Um, so he'd say, you know, draw me or pick out pieces of magazine scraps that remind you of spring or remind you of summer. I mean, I remember that distinctly as a project. Um, and he was interested in reading with us. So we would come, and he, he loved comics. So he would sit, and one of us would read, and he would laugh, and we would laugh. And he'd ask us, well, what do you think about that? And, um, and we came in, and I mean, often he was busy. And we were off somewhere with my aunt. She would take us to theater, ballet. 
um, ice skating at Rockefeller Center, because you have to imagine we grew up on Staten Island. She grew up on Staten Island, and she knows there's none of that really there. And I think she took it on. Um, she took that project on of exposing her nieces and nephews to the larger world. And so we would come, and sometimes he was very busy, and he would greet us like the jolly uncle. And people think I'm playing, but that is like my image of a jolly uncle, you know, big smile, working there in the loft. And then we were off somewhere, and he'd give us some money, like dig in his pockets, give us money, or, you know, or there were times when we'd come back and he'd have dinner with us. And um, he and Nanette liked to make these biscuits that I thought were like these incredible biscuits and spaghetti that we always had like spaghetti and biscuits or pasta and whatever but these biscuits were so good and then I learned later that I like Pillsbury biscuits or <laughs> you know or Bisquick or something really easy but um but that's a memory um that I have of them and they just were happy and they obviously were Bohemian, but I don't know if I identified it as such then. I just knew that it was very different than our homes in Staten Island, okay. you know, um, and eclectic. They had a lot of stuff and, um, and a lot of books. Um, and we loved going there. It was, um, you know, they had cats. They always had at least three cats at every moment. And, um, and there was a family that lived downstairs from them. They lived on Canal Street, 357 Canal. I'll never forget that address. And um, they it was a fourth floor walk up and narrow, narrow, dark walk up. But I remember that. And they lived, the family was a Japanese artist and his family, he, has, he had a daughter and a son. And, um, Toshito, I think her name was Tokito, I don't remember exactly Toshito, but she was about our age. And so, um, oh yes, I should mention that whenever I went over to my aunt and uncle's house, I went with two other cousins. We were all, we're all the same age um, and from different sisters, <laughs> aunts. And um, and you will, one little funny story is that, um, I don't know, maybe you won't find this funny, but I think it's cute. Uh, <laughs> uh, initially, when Nanette was bringing us, when she got involved with her, her nieces and this idea, they, they built a um, loft bed in, one of, in the back room of their loft. And um, in the loft bed was, I mean, it's so small when I think about it now. Um, but what they did was they just had a closet. And on top, they built a bed with stairs. And um, so they started having sort of mostly nieces, because that's what Nanette could handle. And at first, it was my cousin Charlene, who is Sheila's daughter, and my sister Irie who's older than me by two years. And she was taking them to dance class. She enrolled them in dance classes. And then they would come and you know hang out for the weekend. And I was not able to come. Like, I wasn't asked to come. One time when we were bringing my sister into the city, um, well, both of them into the city, and I was driving back with my mom and my uncle, I didn't want to leave 
So I hid my shoe thinking that if I couldn't like find my shoe, that maybe they would just let me stay and hang out. And um, it just didn't happen. And my mother got hip to it. But I remember for a, for a little while, they were all looking for the shoe. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> it was a sandal. And, um, and I think my mom, I don't want to say she hit me with it, but she was, she was very upset with me for delaying. Um, but anyway, so I say that because too, you know, Aunt Ninette did what she could with who she could manage, right? Like, it wasn't like she was bringing all the boys and all of the, you know, all of us, and we had to be a certain age, and we had to be able to know how to behave. Um, so this is between the age of, I'd say, 10 to, to 17, we were hanging out. And really, um, not so much, like, when we were 18, we went with them down to St. Martin. And it was my first visit to St. Martin in the Caribbean. And they took all three, three of us, three cousins, and we were all turning 18. And we were a hot mess. We were just, <laughs> we just did too much. And, um, and they were ready to send us home. Because, <laughs> you know, we, we um, were going, we were trying to go to the clubs. At that time, there were only two dance clubs, you know, and... Um, and we felt like superstars because we were from New York, right? And so um, we did that. And then at one point, um, my Garomi said that we had to have whoever was picking us up at the bottom of the hill because the, the house is on a big hill. Whoever was going to pick us up had to come all the way up the hill and meet him. And we were like, oh, my God. You know, so it was that kind of stuff where we just, they, after a week, they were ready to send us back. Uh, we put posters on the wall. Why were we bringing posters? I don't know. We, we were going on vacation, but we brought posters. We were using too much water. It was that kind of like just 18 and just a hot mess. And I had already moved to California by then with my family, but I came out to go with them. So that's why I'm saying that. I'm, I'm trying to think of the last time we went to Nanette and Romy's house. I think we might have been... 14 or 15. I don't think we were older than that um, when we when we stopped going. And we would go for the weekends, and then we would go back. Um, sometimes she would bring us in on the ferry, but sometimes my uncle would drive us. And so, um, yeah. Um, and my mother also had some artistic. She still does, um, but she actually made paintings, a few paintings that I remember being in the house no one knows what happened to them, but, um, you know, so I did, I did have that as an influence. I did know that. And my brother, actually, I credit him with teaching me how to draw because he was into comics and he knew how to draw comics really well. And he would just show me some shorthands drawing the Archie comics. Um, and so that is really of the beginnings of it. And I remember, too, I think I've been asked this before, what I thought of Romare's work initially as a kid. This is why I think I can relate to kids in workshops, because some of it was scary. I remember feeling like some of it was, was scary. The faces, the masks, the big hands, um, you know, uh, and... So I guess I can say that I had come to appreciate it 
Um, but as a kid, uh, you know, you have all those questions about the work. But also, I just didn't even know what an artist did. Um, I did have one other really strong influence um, in art, and this was a neighbor. Which, I'm sorry, she wasn't a neighbor. This is the best friend of one of my aunts, my Aunt Sheila. And so, yeah, they had a whole, like, group of bohemian artists, dancers, writers, poets. They, they had, they, if it was happening on Staten Island, they knew about it, right? They were part of it. And so um, her name is Andrea Phillips. And she also does collage-type work, but it spilled out into every aspect of her home. So... For instance, she had a refrigerator that was the most fascinating thing to me because it was collaged with labels from bottles, like wine and liquor bottles and all kinds of you know labels that she would. Mostly, when I think about it, it wasn't like food labels. It was definitely like wine and liquor labels. Beautiful, the most beautiful thing. Now, um, I, I'm sure she threw it away. She's still living too, but... Um, also, she would do these patchwork um, creations, right? So purses, pillows, um, clothing, jackets. Everybody had them. You know, I still have some. Um, and she did quilts. And she also um, she did decoupage on all her furniture. And her, um, her yard in the back had like a... A ceramic path that she had pieced together. And I just remember that her whole life, all of her energy, all of her art was her her house. Like it was it was like you were living inside of a painting. And the the most fascinating thing as a kid, I mean if you like visual stuff, and I think I did even then, um, just so much to look at. And um and she was just funny. She is funny and warm. Um, she came to one of my openings, and I was just so honored because she loved my work, and that was a real that was a real perk for me. Um, but anyway, so she was a strong influence um, also because we would go over her house. You know, they would they they were girlfriends. You know, all like all the girlfriends like we do, you get together and you talk at each other's house and the kids just play. And I was under the table most of the time drawing or doing something and I had access to the whole rest of her house. And, um, and so that really was a big influence, I think, to me and what art could be. Um, because she also, at the time, I don't remember him as well, but her husband was an artist. And he was a painter, and he made funny paint, like, to me as a child, very um, explicitly sexual, um, weird paintings where women figures had like six and eight breasts. And I just thought, that is weird. So compared to, so I did have a variety of art in my life, I can say, before I started going to museums and galleries, this was what I thought of as art, was just what these people were producing and making with their, with their hands, and I thought of that as art. Um, Andrea sewed, 
my sister sewed, made clothes, Nanette sewed. Um, and so those are the kind of things that, and I say that because I think so much of the influence in talking to children about art is getting them to understand what art can be. It's not just what you see in the museum, but it's things that people create, it's crafts. Um, and I know that kids often get a kick out of knowing that Rowan, and this is why I show a film of him actually walking, breathing, making art, because I think they have this idea that artists are these other beings, you know, they hear about Picasso or whatever, any, whatever education they do get in art. Um, and I like for them to understand that he was the kind of artist that was out in the community. He was, he was real. He would, he would make things, he would take scraps and put them together. I think that that's important for artists to under, for young artists to understand that, um, art is everywhere and that you can make it too. And it's, you know, it doesn't take um, some special being to, um, you know, have these visions and, and make art. Um, and I think that that's, to me, um, a lesson that I learned early on, um, that artists were people. I, I'd never thought of them in any other way until I started studying them. And then I was like, wow, okay, cut your ear off, all right. Okay, so something was going operating with you. <laughs> no, but... Um, but yeah, and so I didn't have lofty views of art, I think, in, in that way until I got older and kind of understood um, what it took for other people to to make things, too. I'm really fascinated by how, you know, I, I think we think of like quilting and sewing as you know, very like feminized mm -hmm. arts. Mm -hmm. um, and I love that is what you were drawn to, mm -hmm. you know, when you were growing up and you recognized that as mm -hmm. art um I don't know can you talk a little bit about like kind of how that played into your practice mm -hmm. as you mm -hmm. grew into mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um yeah I guess I I am drawn to the way things are made like when I go to museums I mean I paint because I love illusion I love what you can do with, um, with the knowledge that people have of representational space and how you can flip that or blur it or abstract it, whatever. But I'm, I'm always drawn to the way that things are made, the transformation that, um, that art makes um, from paint to... Um, to different uh, structures and surfaces. Um, and I try to look at art in many different angles before I make a oftentimes before I even make a decision or analysis about what's going on in the painting, I'm more interested in it as an object. And I wonder if that comes out of just my experience with craft um, family in that way. Um, but um, I do think that, you know, with the debates between craft and fine art, I've always like rolled my eyes, like, what is that about? You know, and it's still, they're still doing it. Even, you know, even certain forms of accepted art practices are, you know, there's a hierarchy in the museums between photography 
and things that are watercolor versus oil paint. And I just, that, that never, that never stuck for me for, for, for what it's worth. And then also, um, now, I mean, a lot of those lines are being drawn, I mean, blurred, which is good. Um, artists are, are making with all sorts of things. Um, but I think for me, I never um, explore. I mean, I, I do remember while I was working on graduate work that um, I started taking some classes that could have easily completely derailed me. You know, one was a, an early computer class, and I thought, hmm, what can I do? And then I took printmaking, and I was like, why am I painting? I could be making pr 10 prints in the time that I, you know, do one quarter of a painting. And I can try out different colors, and I, got I could get easily distracted in the way things were made. And, um, and there was another class I took um, on electronic circuits, and I thought, ooh, I could really like get into this, you know. So I was always interested in wood. I took woodworking when I was in middle school. And my mother still has some of those little things I made. And the, the things I liked about the thing I liked about that was that, and this is this is maybe a challenge and, and maybe this is a therapy session, I don't know, but um, <laughs> it's one of the the challenges I have in making paintings now is that I don't see them as utilitarian in the way that I've always seen craft and other art um, and what I always wanted to sort of put into the world as opposed to putting in, uh, you know, a hundred more paintings. Um, you know, we can stack them all up and burn them, you know, for all I care. But um, it's, well, scratch that. That's, that's not nice. But... Um, but I do think that that's a challenge for me, is this idea that I've, there's a part of me that always wanted my paintings to be useful and used and part of other kinds of objects. And, um, and so when you're just painting, which is what, what I you know, have done, I find that that is just about conversation. And, I've always, and I had a lot of debates in, in, um, in graduate school about things looking pretty or pleasant or pleasurable, um, you know, because I was going through, through um, graduate school in the early 90s and there were debates about like what's pretty and, and not valuable or what's less valuable because it, the prettier it is. And so, yeah, I don't know if that answers that question, but it could all go back to my engagement with craft early on and my respect um, for that and fascination with the, how you can, how your art, you know, moves out into your world and becomes your home. Did your mother specifically have any art in the house that you remember? She liked to collect little chaskis. I mean, she has, she still has that thing where she collects a lot of um, little things. But no, I mean, she had, I remember there was a painting, her painting. And um, I don't remember any of my father's paintings 
because by time I became aware he was, you know, they weren't living together. Um, I've seen pictures of his paintings. Um, some of them are abstract. One of them um, came up for auction recently. It was an odd little thing that um, came up for auction, and it was a painting of a singer, and I think it was hanging in a club. And um, the singer was Josephine, not Baker, a different Josephine, because I looked her up, I did a little research, and basically it was a rendition of a, a famous photo of, of this singer. And, but I don't remember any of his paintings um, or photography. Um, we had Andrea's work um, in the house, and they were wearing her, her work. Um, but I don't remember Romy's work hanging as a child. But um, as a young adult, once we had moved to California, once my mother moved us all to California, um, this was in 1977, um, I do remember then she had framed um, prints and posters of Romy's work. But I don't remember that as a young, young child. It, was, it would have been like high school age. I remember seeing some of it, yeah. So you said your family supported your decision to become an artist mm -hmm. in general? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, my mother did not, she had some college, but not a lot of college. And, um, but she believed in education. They all did, all the sisters, you know, expected all of their kids to go to college. And I was the baby. Um, my oldest sister, she was probably the, the most scholarly in the family. And she got a um, scholarship to Simmons College, the girls' college in Boston. And she was very bookish. She was... Um, you know, very tall for her age and awkward. And um, and I always felt sorry for her because she had to take care of us pretty much because my mother was single, working, and she was, um, you know, taking care of us after school. And when she went away to college, it was such a relief for her. <laughs> and then she'd come back in the summers and have to deal with us. But, um, but it was, there was an expectation Right, she. There were a lot of expectations on her. She was the first child. She was expected. She was smart. She was going to college. She got a scholarship. Then my brother, you know, he had other interests and wasn't really that bookish, you know. And so there wasn't any pressure on him. Um, but I do recall sort of all of his troubles that he would have, my mother would often say, well, you should have went to college, you should have, you know. So I got that messaging, because um, I was the youngest. And then my middle sister, um, she was always um, sort of a, a hustler, doing a lot of things, working. She was in sales, and she was busy, and she could make clothes. And she started off at FIT, um, but then dropped out. Now, for me, I mean, I, I knew that I liked art, and um, I had two wonderful, wonderful um, teachers in high school. Now, I'm in California at this time, um, and 
I sort of didn't, I really didn't think about being an artist as a profession, but I did well enough in school where it was expected that I'd go to college. So I didn't really know what I was going to study. Um, and then those, these two art teachers I had who were married, a married couple, they were very encouraging and they had suggested that I apply to um, the University of California because I couldn't afford college necessarily, but they said you should apply to Long Beach State. It's one of the best of the state colleges for art. Betty Edwards was teaching there. I don't know if you, you don't know who Betty mm -hmm. Edwards is, but she's the woman who wrote that series of books, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. Okay, so she, so she was at Long Beach State and they recommended that and, um, you know, it was it was clear from college counselors they were not encouraging, you know, I was part of that generation where they were not encouraging black kids necessarily going to college. They would just say, well, you know, you can get a good job going doing hit and going that and you know. And so even though I got pretty good grades, they were not pushing um us to go to Ivy League schools or any of that, you know, I don't remember any of that kind of push. Not like here on the East Coast, my daughter's school. I mean, it's like you're going to college when you're going to middle school, right? So you, 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 and that's about exposure, you know. Um, I'm sure if my mother had gone to college, she might have been a little bit more savvy about, you know, getting me into other college or encouraging me to apply to other kinds of colleges. Um, maybe I could have gotten scholarships, but I just didn't apply because it just wasn't something that was presented to me. Did Romare have any impact on your decision to go no. to art school? No, no. I remember when, um, when I called him up to tell him I was going to college and that I had decided I was going to be a professional artist. I was going to be an artist, like, like my art teachers. And he goes, okay, that's good, but you need to either marry. No, first he said, you need to come back to New York. You, because in order to be an artist, you need to be in New York. And I was like, okay. And, um, and when I was, or maybe he said that to me later. That I remember calling him on the phone, and, and there were two things that he told me, and I might have the order mixed up. One, he was saying I needed to marry somebody rich because it takes a lot to be an artist. Okay, well, well, he had a wife. He didn't have a rich spouse. He had a wife. And I guess that's what I really needed was a wife, right? <laughs> like, you know, somebody to take care of me while I was doing my art. Um, and then he said that I needed to come back to New York. And be, but I remember at that time, this is why I'm thinking I had it mixed up, because at that time, my first thinking was, there's no way I'm coming back to New York right now because I, I, I'm with, I'm, I have this boyfriend and he lives here. And so I'm not moving to New York. Um, and he wasn't going to be rich. He was going to be a scholar. I knew that even then. Um, so no, he didn't have any, you know, and I'm trying to think back now whether there was any, whether Nanette and Romy even knew, um, 
what kinds of things we were doing once we left New York. I'm not sure how much my mother was in conversation with them. I mean, I think that the impression that I had, too, is that most of the, the way that I got into college had in part to do with my professors, but also, or, or my teachers, they were high school teachers, and my sister, who was already, you know, um, in college. And we are nine years apart. So she would have been my only experience getting into college. And I remember she helped with application and she helped with, you know, the statements and things that I had to do. But even like for financial aid, I did all of that. Um, and I went to a school that was considered a, a commuter school. So, you know, we did all of our fin own financial aid papers. And by time, you know, that I got there, it was that that's what you did you know, and you've got the Pell Grants and, you know, you got your way through um, college on your own um, without a lot of input from your parent. Or maybe I just didn't have that input from my parent, even though, um, you know, now that I think about it, I had cousins and other people who had gone through college, but I, I either was not in contact with them or we were on the, the West Coast and we just weren't you know, we weren't hip to it. But I do remember thinking back to that time when my daughter was applying for colleges or applying for middle school. And I was like, wow, this is intense, you know, because these parents were already designating their kids to go into the Ivy League. And so they're just trying to jockey for spaces and figure out what they have to do. And the kids all know about this. They know that they're expected to go to you know Harvard and Yale and I'm just like wow I wish in a way that I had someone exposing me to that because like I said I probably could have I got pretty good grades I probably could have applied and gotten in and maybe gotten a scholarship but it wasn't the way that that I got there but you did manage to become an artist I and did manage I did said that painting was your medium yes well Painting became my medium. I went, when I first entered into college, I went as an illustrator. I mean, I wanted to do illustration because that's what I was encouraged and that's where my skills were um, in painting and drawing. And, you know, so those are the classes that I took. I remember the hardest class for me was perspective. I say that was like learning another language. You know, the, the technical aspect of 2D design. Um, I didn't know anything about that. And I, and I always felt a little behind the ball um, compared to the other students, you know. Because, um, you know, you'd, you'd be in art history classes and these students had, some of them had been to Rome and... <laughs> you know, had been to France and had seen these churches and this great art. And it was all new to me. Like the study of art was completely new. And I always felt like I was catching, trying to catch up and trying to figure out how it informed what I was doing. Um, and so I didn't really get the idea. I didn't free myself up to do painting for painting's sake until I was in my senior year. And I was about to graduate, 
And I went out and I got a couple of jobs doing, you know, illustration and paste up and layout because they didn't have, they weren't doing it on computers then. So the basic paste up and layout kind of chop shop work. And then I was like, this sucks, you know, like this sucks. And so um, I wanted to go back. It took me a while, but I wanted to go back to graduate school to become a painter, painter. So when you were doing the pasting and cutting and pasting, did that remind you of Romare's practice? No. Didn't have any connection to that? No, no No. connection to that. Interesting, but no. So um, to get back to Romare and sort of how you first became aware of him as a person, um, he was already when you were born married to your aunt Mm -hmm. so do you have a first recollection of him a first like time of sort of becoming aware of him as a distinct person um okay that's something to think about what I can say is that he was sort of a star in the family. You know, you can imagine a family of eight girls on Staten Island, okay, and their father had died when all of them, or when some of them were teenagers. My mother was eight, I think, eight or 10. And so she struggled with them um, to support them. And she had a good community in Staten Island. There are a lot of, you know, St. Martiners and a lot of West Indians there. And, um, and the older girls, so Evelyn and Nanette were the older girls, really, and Dorothy. They all, you know, this is the, the, family, um, the family lore, but they were able to get out of the house because they were working and their money was needed for the house. Um, And so then my mother is fourth and my aunt Marie is fifth. And they claim that they were the workhorses of the family, okay? Because they literally had to do all of the housework and all of that, bring coal up from the basement, you know, that kind of stuff that they just have never let go of. Because then you had three younger ones, right, who were the the little kids. And Sheila, the youngest, who was the ballet dancer, she had polio when she she was younger. And um, I don't think it was a severe case because they um, put her in a brace. I remember being told about that. They put her, I don't remember seeing her that way. Of course I didn't, but she was a baby. But um, she did wear a brace, and then that was how she, that was how they suggested dance for her, ballet dance. And Nanette, her older sister, would sort of take her to dance classes, and then she'd take her into the city, dance classes on Staten Island, and then she'd take her into the city and then encourage her, you know, and when Dance Theater Harlem was doing auditions, you got to go, I'll take you. And so, um, so... I think that by time Romare came around, or any husbands came around, they were fed it over by my 
grandmother. You know, it was like, oh, you know, every, like my um, my Aunt Dorothy's husband or, um, you know, boyfriend at the time or soon-to-be husband was a lawyer. Or he was going to be a lawyer. He was a lawyer. And so it was like always like, oh, make sure Ernest has a plate. Make sure, you know. And this is how those women grew up. You know, it's like, you know, make the man's plate, you know. And um, they all loved my grandmother, the, the, the men who came into the family, they all loved her. It was a big family. She'd cook and they were welcome at the table and um, and they would come and they would they were loud, you know, and they'd have parties and family gatherings. And I remember Romeo there. Now he was a he was an artist and um, and he and Nanette were doing their thing in the city. And when they came to Staten Island, you know, like like every other guest, he was fed it on and served and, you know. And I remember, though, his laugh, too, which is funny because you, you hear other scholars and friends talk about his laugh. But his laugh was really, like, deep, um, what they call southern, you know, laugh. He didn't have a real, I don't remember him having a southern accent, per se, but I just might not have detected it then. But he was um, welcome, and um, my father was welcome. Everybody um, loved this family of women um, because they would dote on them when they would come. And, um, and Romy was a, a bit of a star because I think he was, he was making his way. But so was Nanette. She was modeling, and she had done things on TV, and she had done things in, in magazines, and you know that had a certain cachet. My um, Aunt Evelyn, the oldest girl, she was always working um, sort of clerical, um, secretarial, but at a high level. Um, and I think, I think she also at some point did factory work, as my grandparents did. And so um, I remember my mother talking about my grandparents working in a copper a factory in New Jersey at some for when they first came to the country. So, um, you know, I don't think it was the kind of thing where, you know, she was marrying into a wealthy family because Romain wasn't wealthy then. He was an artist. Um, and he and, and by the time they got married in 55, he was not, he, he had had some exhibitions and he was of note, but um, it wasn't anything like what happens in the 60s to his career, and he was a social worker. Um, but he was respectable, and Nanette was, you know, the, the way that people talk about her, or the way the people in the family talk about her, was that, um, you know, she was very willful. So she kind of got what she wanted. You know, because I, I asked the question, why would a young black girl from Staten Island you know, for parents who were immigrants, why would she be starting a company? Like, why would she be starting a dance company? And where did she get off, like, modeling and doing it? And they said because she sort of had a way about her where she just got what she wanted and, um, and she was in the right circles. And starting a dance company was what they were doing then in the, in the 60s is that, you know, they weren't, they didn't exist. So you had to make them and it was possible. 
Whereas I'm thinking, even now, I'm thinking to myself, that's not an easy thing to do, but okay. Um, you know, and so I'm sure that um, when I first met Romy, uh, I was trying to think about the way he looked when I met him. He had hair. So uh, <laughs> he had hair, and um, and he was friendly. Uh, I always remember he, you know, had a wonderful smile, and um, and he took an interest in the kids. You know, it's not like he didn't notice us, didn't know who we were. I mean, he knew who we were, um, and he would read and talk to us. Um, and um, and so, yeah, I mean, he was definitely favored in the family, as I think any guy would coming into a family like that. Um, and as long as you're a good guy, you know, you'll get good treatment. I don't know. I don't know. But, yeah, that's yeah. what I remember of him. And what I remember of him initially was not as an artist because I didn't really know what that I, – I wasn't really conscious of – what that man or what his work was like. It wasn't until I was visiting their home that I could see that he would make things and he would paint and create things. And he um, was the type of artist who used scraps and collage. Um, and you know, I was familiar with what collage is just from school, but that I could tell that he was doing something that people liked and that was respected, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about The Loft? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. That's a good question. Um, the Loft to me was like just a big, long box. And I remember I remembered it on, mostly later when I'm thinking of my own home or, or looking for an apartment in New York. And... Um, and the beauty of a loft that was just one shape. And I remember Nanette and Romy yelling to each other, you know, right. It's like they were in one room, but they'd say, Rome, and then they'd talk, or Nan, you know, because he called her Nan. She called him Rome. And, um, and it was just like one big space. And we could hear everything. And you could hear them walking. This, this was the, that was the thing, because Romy was a big guy, and you could hear, he had a certain movement on the floor, and you know, in a loft, you hear everything. You hear the pressure, you hear upstairs, you hear downstairs. And so I remember that. I remember that there were, um, I remember the wall of books, because that, to me, was just a wonder. Um, and then he had a ladder that would go from one side that was on a, um, a, a pulley, yeah, a track. And um, it would be pulled from one side to the other and just looking at all of those books and then everything stuck in between books. It wasn't, it wasn't completely disorderly, the loft, but there was a lot of stuff, you know. And I remember you came in and there was a, a marked off living area. And I say that because literally in a loft, it's just a wall or a cabinet or something that makes the next room. And so you'd come in and there was a living room. And I remember for a long time they had what I later 
realized was furniture like they have in St. Martin, which is some of its wicker and fabric. And I never thought it was weird when I saw it in the house until I saw it in St. Martin. And I saw that a lot of people in St. Martin, the islands, have furniture like that. And I'm like, why would they have that in the city? But, um, you know, but it wasn't anything that was, um, it was all kind of exotic as a kid. Like they had, you know, Turkish carpets. and um, But it wasn't... Um, It wasn't like it wasn't immediately or, or even thinking back now, it wasn't apparent like how wealthy they were or if they were wealthy at all. Like you didn't you didn't get that sense. It was comfortable. It was lived in. It had a lot of things from their travels, um, you know, a, a, a bookcase with a lot of little roosters and other paper mache kind of things that they'd pick up. Um, African masks they had. Um, vases um, and tapestry kind of things that they've collected. Um, and it was eclectic. And then Romare had a, um, like a drafting table set up in, in one corner that faced the door, which I always thought was interesting. So if you, if you come in to the loft, like say you're coming in, you're in the middle of the loft, right? And it's, you know, horizontal, and the windows um, were these big, huge windows. It's just beautiful. They always got a lot of light in there. And then to the right, you know, Romy had his desk sort of perpendicular to the wall. And I wondered if that was to greet people when they came in, because he often would be there and we would, um, you know, come in and he would be, hey, the girls are here. They called us the girls, right? And the girls are here. And he'd get up sometimes, or sometimes he'd be in the middle of something, or he would be on the phone. Um, and um, sometimes he would be sitting watching, you know, TV. They used to like to watch a lot of TV, you know, sports. He was into baseball. Um, and they taped a bunch of stuff, which you might, you might have seen that in the archives, taped over other programs. Um, and... Um, and then behind Romy would be, so, so from that, that desk that was perpendicular, the drafting table, back was sort of his work area. They had a bed back there. Um, and they had the, the wall of books, but, and they had paintings stacked. And so that was sort of like his studio area. And then to the left would be, sort of the dining area, dining table and chairs, and um, bookshelves with, with things on them, you know, which I'm used to in my family, just all kinds of little knickknacks. Um, and then a kitchen and a bathroom, and then that back room where we would, which was basically a walk-in closet probably now, um, I think of it that way. And so, um, but again, it wasn't, it wasn't something that was stylized. It was just lived in basic furnishings. I think they lived modestly. When I think back now to you know what they must have, they traveled a lot, but I think they were living quite modestly um, and, um, and they were in one of those lofts. They didn't own it. Uh, they were renting. 
And towards the end of his life, they, um, they also started renting the one that was on the, the ground level because he couldn't go up the stairs anymore. But they had both of them. And that one was full of stuff. And then they filled this stuff. <laughs> then they filled up that bottom one. And, um, and after Nanette passed away, shortly after Nanette passed away, there was a fire in the store. Because, you know, this is Canal Street. And they have shops on the bottom floor mostly. And there was a fire on the corner of that building. And it affected their bottom loft. So some things got lost in that. Um, so where am I? <laughs> yeah, no, that's it. That's interesting. Um, were you able to go to the studio in Long Island City? Or was you know, that... I never went there. I never went there. I wish I had. I never went there. Okay. So you saw him work at home. Mm-hmm. 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 And, um, and I also saw him entertaining. He would entertain people. Invariably, there would be people there. Um, and some, I guess, were there by appointment, but others, I think, were just hanging out and talking, telling stories. Um, family, you know, um, we have a big family, so there were always, you know, some, somebody hanging out. And, um, and then he was working, and he would take moments out to, to talk to us. Like I said, I never thought of him as one of those artists where, like, see ya, get, get out my way. He was generous um, in that way, and he was generous with his guests, you know, talking, um, being interviewed, and occasionally um, asking Nanette for clarification. What's the name of this, Nan? <laughs> you know, what's the name of this again? What's the name of that, or what's this? You know, they would, they would talk like that, like just yell into the other room. Um, and... They were, they were close. They they were cute, you know. Um, they were close, and they had those damn cats, which to us, they you know, as kids, we would they they were just a nuisance. Um, we would be responsible for feeding them in the morning, and my cousins, one in particular, could sometimes be cruel to the cats. I mean, they were, we were always scheming of how we could just do these cats in, um, because they would cry. And it's it got it was creepy to us because it felt like they were babies, right? Like, yeah, yeah. we're like, oh, it's, what these cats are scaring us. Um, and it seemed like the cats could do no wrong, right? Like I remember one time, funny story. There was company, and I was just sitting in the corner. I don't know why. I I I watched it, but I I was freaked out. But the cat came with the mouse in its mouth, and it was company there. And they were just like, shoo, shoo, shoo. Like they were just like shooing them away. And I'm just like, ah, <laughs> this cat. Um, but yeah, and one time we caught the cats um, tearing up a tapestry. Or to mm-hmm. us, which seemed like tearing it up, sorry. Um, they were like pulling their um, nails against it, their claws. And we were like, oh, we could get in trouble. <laughs> And Nanette was like, stop that, Tuttle, stop that. Just like talking to them like they're just kids and they're not destroying some expensive tapestry, you know, one of Romeo's tapestries. But um, 
So they were funny. And of course, as kids, you know, the adults are funny, right? They're, they're funny. They're, they're, you know, they don't dress well. You know, you don't come to respect any of that until later. And so that's, that. my aunt was, was funny. She dressed, she didn't care about how, what she looked like. And she used to be a model. But yet when she got with Romy, it's like she let herself go. I don't know. You know, that's what we always said. Like she just, mm-hmm. she just had other things to think about. She wasn't worried about being pretty all the time. And she had a lot more to do because she was running the dance company, but she's also helping to manage his stuff. And um, so she had more to do. So she was rushing around. And yeah, you know, we, we, would, we would laugh at her, the clothes she wore. Because um, she was a bit of a, Bohemian. She was like an artist, you know, and but they all were. And we all my mother, my mother used to wear capes, like big capes, like a, she had a big red cape. And I'll never forget one time she came to some school function. Everybody talks about this to this day, but she came to this school function and it was it's bad enough that they all had like little short afros because that was the style. And she and she thought she was so fly. She came walking into this thing with this huge red bright red cape on and she thought she was just I think she must have some boots on or something and she looked really good when I think about it but as a kid it was a horror it was a horror that our parents were always our parents and aunts were always embarrassing us but um okay but why am I saying that okay yeah no I mean what else yeah um what else do you remember about how Nanette supported Bearden's career yeah yeah, um, you know, some of it I learned later, um, where she actually um, was helping to sew um, some things. You know, there are a couple of tapestries that um, were manufactured commercially. That's not what I'm talking about, but there's a couple of things that Romy was putting together, and I haven't quite figured out for what reason or to what end. We still have them in the estate, but um, I would think of them as maybe uh, maquettes for things. And, um, and we know that Nanette sewed and made her own clothes. I can't say she directly did that, but it makes sense that she would have um, helped him with that. Um, I know that from her diaries, which I'm still sort of getting through, her diaries and journals, it is full of appointments and phone calls that she has to make. A lot of them are for the dance company. But in, in between, if you read between the lines, she's calling this one or that one or helping Romy do this. And he was helping her, too, with her dance company. He created the logo, and he would create prints that could be sold to help finance. Um, I'm sure he was financing a lot of the activities and she was, um, you know, going back and forth. And then, um, you know, they traveled a lot and she was the one who, you know, would organize the travel, organize his, the bags. And then she would talk about how much entertaining they were doing when they went to a place like St. Martin because he would invite people down, or they both would, I don't know, but it, it was a lot of art world people who would come down and hang out. And so, oh, we're having dinner with this one, or 
or you have to go pick up that one from the airport, and you know, that kind of thing. And, um, and Romy didn't drive. I do not think Nanette, you know, I don't know. I don't know, but I know, I know that Romy didn't drive and that he had a driver when he went to St. Martin. And I know that Frank Stewart drove a lot for him around mm -hmm. the city and um, up back and forth to Yale when he was doing those lectures. So, um, so he had a lot of support, but she was, um, you know, and I'm, and I'm trying to figure out exactly how that worked because he, you know, she was so busy with the dance company. I don't think it was the kind of thing where, you know, they, they seemed very unconventional now that I think about it, um, to me as a child. And, um, and I loved going there because it wasn't like, um, you know, it wasn't like home and it was more interesting and, um, and then it would take us places. But I don't think it was the kind of thing where she was getting home and cooking dinner and do, doing all of that. I mean, they didn't have any kids. They were kind of free spirits. And, um, and so I'm trying to think when, when, they, when they've made some of those films, like Bearden Plays Bearden, which is the documentary, she's sitting there with a cup of coffee or something and it looks really odd because I don't it didn't look like her personality but I think that they just posed it for the film where you know Romy's there and looking at a piece of painting or pretending to paint for the cat or whatever and she's there with a cup of coffee and I'm just like what is she doing there why did they put her there right because she wasn't that kind of wife like wasn't like a, um but so besides sort of the business of being art, I don't think that she was involved in the, you know, business with his gallery until after he died. Then she had to do all of that. Um, and, but she was there when company came. She was part of the conversation. Um, and she was helping him get stuff ready, you know, and get things ready. And definitely towards the end of his life, you know, um, there was a lot of, a lot of support. Um, you know, even in that piece about Tebow and him, you know, at one point, Schwartzman, the biographer, says that Nanette started coming to the studio every day because, I guess, to pick him up or just, you know, to, to check on him and make sure that thing, everything was okay. So um, I'm trying to think. But in terms of making the art, um, in terms of titling, of course, he had Albert Murray to help him there. <laughs> um, Were you aware of these p figures like Murray or the social scene that they were a part of, or you no. just knew they saw a lot of... I knew there were a lot of people around. Um, is that what you mean? Like, yeah. Did yeah. you have yeah, a sense course, that it was of course, now very I'm, important? Now I'm kicking myself because I was not aware. Like I say that he had company. I don't know who they were. I wish I, I, wish I had known. I wish I were more aware um, or that there were recordings or something um, to sort of document it. But I just missed all of it because, you, you know, you just, you're not in the right frame of mind. Um, and when I did start to become aware of art and the importance of his, I was already in California in, you know, college. So, 
you know, I had sort of missed out on um, really being a part of what they were doing. Um, and one other thing I was going to say about Nanette um, was... Oh, what I, this is what I was going to say. What I remember when I was looking at the documentary for the first time. Um, no, I, it couldn't have been the first time. It was when I first saw the um, outtakes. And they did end up adding some of this to the DVD set that they made. Because this was made in the 80s, so it wasn't a DVD at the time, and they reissued it. And part of what they put in there was this outtake with Nanette um, and Romy talking. And I love it because she's talking over him. And, you know, so it's a little bit about her personality, but also you get the sense that she had some influence over the way he was thinking or that they had exchanged a lot at least. Because he's saying why he made something blue or whatever, and and she's like, well, it's because of this, and and you're just like, wow, like, shouldn't you just be like let the artist talk? But but she's got that personality, and she obviously knew um, why he had put that blue there and why he had used that. It's because of your feel for the for the Caribbean. It's the colors you see in the Caribbean. Um, and so that's kind of like, I, I just saw that as a little sign of her, her personality and boldness and input, you know, not that she was telling him what to do, of course, but that she was in touch with, um, some of the inspiration for the works. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us what you may remember or your impressions of what they were like as sort of engaged people during the 60s? I can't talk about Romy or Nanette, actually, because in the 60s, my awareness is um, what was happening on Staten Island, even just a little bit. And, and it's, it's mainly just um, what my mother and aunts were involved in. Um, I know there was an incident where um, Staten Island always had, had a lot of racial problems um, in the 60s. And I remember being with my aunt and her group, you know, like her group of her band of dancers and singers and meditators and <laughs> all the stuff that they would do. I remember that we were, they were practicing for some kind of performance. And we were in the community center of one of the um, public housing projects, not the one I grew up in, but um, I believe it was, you know, Park Hill or somewhere, so some of the area of Staten Island. And we were singing and had tambourines and, you know, all kinds of making very loud, uh, young, gifted, and black. I remember that mm -hmm. song. And so this was part of some performance that my aunt and her friends were putting together. And um, they, somebody threw a rock at the window. But um, I, 
I guess I'm telling the story because I, I know that the kinds of things that they were involved in, um, you know, that we had to contend with some of the racial strife, I guess is the best way to talk about it on Staten Island. So someone threw a rock and then, um, and then, and then they were threatening outside, like a group had gathered outside. And so they called the police and I remember having, you know, I was very young, probably, um, probably seven or eight. I, I don't even remember now. But um, I remember that we had to wait for the police to come, and then they told us to come out. And when we came out, you know, they were there, like with bats and sticks and um, you know, we were really scared. And and I didn't even realize how scary it was when we were inside. I didn't know what was happening. All I knew was that, you know, the adults were telling us to get down and away from the windows. And then when we went out, we saw that there were all of these white people um, with bats and sticks. And, and, and I was thinking to myself, all we were doing was singing, you know? So that was just a scary moment, but it's like my aunt's like just took it all in stride, like, let's go, you know, and, and, um, but, but yeah, I remembered that. And, um, my mother was involved with the Urban League. She worked for the Urban League. So she worked for the Urban League on Staten Island. And then she always worked for sort of like job corps, getting people jobs, you know, having all kinds of people staying in our house on our couch. <laughs> she took in people and that kind of thing. And Romy was a social worker, but I didn't really have a sense of, of what he did or where he was at that time. And Nanette, um, you know, they did fundraisers. I, but I know that now, um, like they, they met at a fundraiser for hurricane victims of the Caribbean. You know, so they were doing that. Um, Romy did several posters, and again, I know this now, for, um, you know, one was a, um, a campaign poster, I don't remember, it was for somebody, Toby Moffat, I just remember that, and, um, and of course, he helped with the dance company, but I'm trying to think of anything else political that I was aware of, um, with the beard and so no I, I don't not that I'm aware of it's only what I've read about now you know in retrospect yeah. you know um, and I don't get a sense that Nanette Sheila um, my mother that they were really um, overtly political um you know, Sheila, who was involved in the Institute of Harlem, you know, that was that, that was somewhat a political stance that Arthur Mitchell was taking at that time. And they wore, you know, short naturals, like you see that that famous photo of the Institute of Harlem, the first company. They all you know, many of the women had short naturals and they wore tights that were the color brown tights that were the color of their skin. Um, so that's, you know, a sort of thing that they were involved in. 
um, and they were always getting together and, you know, um, going to protests and things, but I wasn't as aware of what it was for. Um, I know that we, they had to, they had a little struggle be, to get us into the local, um, the new middle school. So we didn't go to the middle school that was right in our neighborhood. We went to the one that was new, um, sort of like what we would call a, a magnet school. I don't think they were calling it then that. And um, and I remember that there was a whole struggle because we weren't in the neighborhood. So we had to, you know, um, I don't know how we got into that school. But I remember it was a, a whole struggle that they were banding together around and going to meetings and, you know, pushing their weight around and whatever they could do to get us into those schools. Um, and then I went to an all-girl Catholic school, which was a complete switch um, for uh, high school. My first year of high school before we moved, um, I went to Notre Dame Academy. And when I went, there were only eight black girls in the whole school. And we all knew each other. <laughs> One of them was my cousin. And... Um, and so that was that was an eye opener, you know. But there weren't it wasn't any overtly political reason for us to be there besides that we were on scholarship. <laughs> yeah, but I say that because our parents were sort of um, interested in those kinds of ideas of you know um, of pushing, of protesting, of. Um, of getting the best schools for us that they could. Um, and, and these were, and it, you know, it was a family of women primarily. The, the men were there um, in the periphery, but most of them were not, you know, as um, present. So moving to later, um, Romare dies in 1988, and it's announced in his will that he wanted to have a foundation. Mm -hmm. And so Nanette gets involved with making that a reality. Yeah, not immediately, um, because she didn't have control of the estate immediately, believe it or not. He left um, it in the control of his lawyer at the time, which was um, Morris Cohen. And so there's one, there's one place where um, I believe, I'm trying to think of where I found this. Oh, it was a letter that I found in the archives, but it might've been Nanette's archives. I can't remember now, I'm sorry. But um, what it says in the letter is she's addressing it to a friend of Romare's who's, who's um, this is very soon after Romare passed. And, um, and she said to him, okay, now we really have to start that foundation that he wanted. You know, it was sort of like coming to the realization that we got to start this. So maybe, so that led me to think maybe he had start he tried to start one or whatever, but then she, she was, he left meaning with the, the lawyer. No, maybe. Right, yes, because he had written for but maybe Romy had expressed this and maybe even tried to do it first, and that didn't happen. And then the lawyer 
you know, um, didn't do it right away. They were interested in other things, um, settling the artwork and moving it out of Cordia Ekstrom for no good reason. And then, you know, finding a different dealer, uh, ACA. So they were doing all of that. And she was saying, this is what we should be doing. Um, and so it isn't after, it isn't until after Morris Cohen dies. And then I think his son took over the case somehow. And then he died. And then Nanette got control. And she started the foundation. So was do you know if there was a clear idea of how the foundation should run or how it should go about making for uh, preserving the legacy? You know, um, it had been a while since I've read. I, I I should have known you'd ask me that question, uh, and. I don't know, but I often ask myself, are we there yet? Like, what were, what was the initial idea? Um, because there's a mission that she set up, and the mission has changed over the years. But um, this idea of perpetuating the legacy has always been something that we're sort of reckoning with now. Um, you know... What does that mean to perpetuate the legacy? Does it mean to um, just protect the artwork, um, preserve whatever it was left? You know, Romy would not have been anticipating what would be left and, and what would need to be preserved. Um, but Nanette, you know, clearly had work that she needed to make sure something, you know, happened to it. But I don't really know what that initial mission was that Romy might have had. I I don't know. I you know and and so I'm always asking myself, was was this just something that was supposed to happen indefinitely in perpetuity? Like what does that mean? Like when do we? How do we know if we've accomplished what we're supposed to accomplish? And I don't know because I haven't I haven't looked. I I've forgotten. I'm sure that I've read both the will and you know, Nanette's initial mission, but it's been so many years that we've just been controlling the mission and doing what we think fulfills that idea of perpetuating the legacy um, through educational programs, through the, through the things that we know were important to his, um, were important ideals for him. Um, so education, helping um, up-and-coming artists, you know, through Sinkay, you know, we tried to preserve that. And um, and preserving his books and his archive. But, you know, those two things, and, and then I'm always thinking, well, was he intending for them to be, um, you know, preserved or out in the world? Or are we supposed to be making books? I, I really don't know. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I struggle with that. The foundation struggles with that um, because initially Nanette was doing things on a very small scale. She was giving out money to, you know, the Guggenheim's children's program or to Sinkay artists. She was helping Sinkay, the gallery. 
and doing this and that, and there was no real coordinated thing. Some scholarships had started under her that then ran out of money, and they were coming to us, but at a time when we didn't have a lot of money, so we were trying to negotiate um, preserving it and hoping that the school, like Davidson was one, where um, scholarship was started under NatNat, and she gave some initial monies, and then they started running out, and we weren't able to help at that time. And so, you know, yeah, these are all questions about what he thought. I mean, because he might have just been thinking of it as a tax shelter, um, which were popular in the 70s, you know, and all of these prints that he made that were part of um, tax shelters. So I don't know what the clear thinking was. I do, I do know that we're one of the longest running foundations of this kind as a nonprofit that perpetuates the legacy. Um, but we don't have the money that those <laughs> other foundations have, um, which would have been great if um, Romare, you know, when, when he died, there wasn't a lot of cash. There's a lot of artwork. Same as Nanette, when she died, there wasn't a lot of cash. She never endowed the foundation with a lot of money. Um, you know, there, there, was, there was some monies that the um, sisters who were involved in, in her estate that they wanted to, um, that they invested in a condo, you know, like part of a floor of a building of nonprofits. And, um, and that was the 305 7th Avenue address. And, um, and then soon... You know, that was hard. 2008, we moved out of that because of the economy. We were doing so poorly. Our investments were doing poorly. And so we moved out of that and moved up to Harvard. So Nanette dies in 96. Mm-hmm. And then your sister, your aunts mm-hmm. take over yeah. running. So which aunts were involved? Yeah. And so, what, what did they do yeah. more specifically? So when Nanette started the foundation, she worked with a friend who was a lawyer. And, I'm, and, and I don't know right now where she knows him from or whether he was around when Romy was still alive, but his name was Gregory Perrin, P-E-R-R-I-N. And he basically helped her with all the administrative setting it up getting the 501c3, all of that. Um, And you see a lot of letters from Perrin that I'm just going through because I just got these as a file from Sheila. But um, he was the one who was basically the director because he was interfacing with folks on who had Bearden's, who wanted to loan, who wanted to do all of that. He really was doing that even though he was a lawyer. It was, everything was done in a much smaller scale. There weren't that many shows. There wasn't that much to manage. And Nanette was doing a lot of it too, but she's also running her dance company. So I could see where they were really working together. And um, they had an office. I wonder, I think they were using the studio. I think they were using Roman's studio in the... Uh, Long Island City, because so I think that's where the office. And so the sisters that were helping her, 
for instance, Dorothy came on, and Dorothy is the third sister, so it would have been her younger sister, one step under her. And Dorothy had um, worked for, um, like she worked for 100 Black Women, and she, you know, lived in D.C., and so she had done, she had done some political work, and she was um, good at at public speaking and all of that. So she came on and she was officially the first director. I don't think Perrin actually ever took the title. I don't know how long he was involved. And um, and so Dorothy was working with her. There was a moment when um, Nanette passed away and Marie, who's younger than my mother, then came on and because she was one of the co-executors she became the president of the foundation not the director because she wasn't doing that kind of work Um, but she was the executor of the estate nanette's estate so they were working together to keep things going and um, the dance company sheila was in charge of that and she dissolved that at one point she brought it back for a little while but basically she dissolved that and um so they so those three stepped in so dorothy was already working with her oh no then also evelyn who's her older sister came to work but i'm not sure i'm assuming that nanette was was passed away by time Evelyn became involved and Evelyn was a bookkeeper. So imagine this, Evelyn's the bookkeeper, Marie is the president, Dorothy's the director, and Sheila was just like doing little secretarial stuff, right? But this is where the foundation got the bad rap that it's just like a family foundation run by the family. They don't know what they're doing. Well, they didn't really know what they were doing. They were learning what to do. I mean, for them, it was all about keeping this foundation that Nanette had started going because this was Nanette's dream, Romy's dream, whatever. They felt like they had to do what they could and they did try to get people to work with them and help them, but they encountered a lot of people who wanted to take advantage of them, um, just as Nanette had. And she talks a lot about this in her, in her um, diaries, her journals, about people taking advantage of them. But her sisters tried to help. They brought, and you know, and all along the way, they kept trying to get advice. So we were always trying to make those um, divisions, but also to um, to make a to become more transparent all along the way about who's working for the foundation, how many family members were on the board, because Nanette had set it up where it always it should always be a third of the board or five members of the board. And so we were always, you know, so then there came a time when um, Evelyn, you know, was retired from working with us because we needed to have a different kind of accounting service, you know, someone who's not, a family member. And then, you know, little by little, people stepped back and stepped away so that we could have this better transparency, even though nobody was doing anything. They just didn't 
most of them didn't know what they were doing. So um, not that the professionals they hired were a whole lot better, but um, at least it looked better, <laughs> you know. Um, so yes, and, and so over the years that I've been with the foundation, we have revisited the mission quite a bit to try to figure out how we can continue to do what we do or what we're best at um, with the resources that we have. So what are those resources? There's the archive. There's the archive. There was the studio. We never had the studio. Okay. Yeah, we, we never had the Long Island studio. Yeah. He didn't own that. They were renting that. Okay. And I believe that they um, used it as an office. And then there was a moment before Nanette died, or maybe it was right after Nanette died, they moved that office. They stopped renting that office. Yes, it must have been when she died because I'd never been there. So they moved the office to my aunt's house in Staten Island. They were working in the basement. And in fact, when Grace Stanislaus was introduced to the foundation. Dorothy was the, was Nanette had passed. Dorothy was the director. But Grace Stanislaus was going out, hiking out to Staten Island to consult on um, the board, developing the board, um, making sure that the um, organization was set up with all of the right um, documents and standards and everything. And so she was trekking out to Staten Island for that. So they didn't own that. And they never owned any of the loft spaces. Um, So the only thing that they ended up owning was the investment that they made on that condo, which was the 305 building offices. Yeah. And that was in 2000, I think like 2000. Yeah. Yeah. So the assets consisted of artwork, there was a pool of artwork that Nanette had created when she set up the foundation. There was a group of artworks that were intended for sale to help with operating cost of the foundation. And so that was a pool of work that the estate and the foundation shared together the proceeds from if they stood sell. The foundation had in its bylaws that they could sell up to two or three works a year for operating costs. Um, and Nanette put that in there, but, you know, the whole time I've been here, we've been trying to fight <laughs> fight that, you know, to find other ways to make money so we don't have to sell artwork. Um, and so the other asset, the big asset, are the archives. It wasn't until later that the estate turned over the archives and they turned over um they they divided up the artwork that was in that pool so that the foundation could own works and be free and clear to sell them or do whatever or not sell them you know do whatever with them and then during that time they also turned over the archives and copyright to the foundation That way, that was a way of them being able to help finance the operations. 
So how did you get involved? I mean, you were in California and you'd come back right. to New York. Yeah, I, to... come, I came back to New York just a couple of years before Nanette passed. Maybe not even because we came in 1995, although I was already on the board because she asked me to, to be on the board, you know, on the phone. She says, you know, be on the board. And then when I moved here, you know, I was going to some meetings and then she died like in nine, like a year, like under two years from the time that I'd gotten to New York. And um, so I was on the board. Um, there were just a few people. It was a very small board. I remember having the first meeting after she passed away at my aunt's house. And people were, you know, they, they were kind of scratching their heads about how to go forward without her because she was the thing driving it. And even then, I think, now that I think about it, everybody was like, okay, what, what is the purpose going to be? Like, what should the purpose be? But yeah, so it was, it was sort of the, the thing, and it's always been, you know, doing this for, for Romy and Nanette, like feeling a sort of awesome responsibility for the work, the legacy, his legacy, her legacy, um, but never really, well, not until more recently, not really knowing how to do that or how to work within the art world. Um, and that's why I was so insistent on getting a dealer because I was like, we don't know anything about that and we don't want to undersell his work. We don't want to over... Do, we don't want to do that. Nanette was willing to jump into that, but I didn't have the skills. I was the only one who kind of knew a little bit about art, but I didn't want to get into that. And um, and I wanted to shield them from that um, and to work with a professional. So we interviewed with Grace Stanislaus, who was Stanislaus, who was a consultant at the time. We interviewed and we found a gallery. We found DC Moore. Um, so I came on initially as a board member, did very little until I actually moved to New York. And then I was just sort of learning the ropes. I didn't know anything about being in organizations except artist collectives, which never worked, <laughs> you know, were always a hot mess. And so, um, I learned, you know, I, I learned at the meetings, you know, how to look at budgets, how to, you know, make decisions, voting and all of that. Um, and, and then it was in 2005, I officially, okay, so in 2004, wait, let me, let me get this right. Um, in 2005, I, so I was not getting paid by the foundation, but I was sort of their collections manager, kind of, you know, um, informally their collections manager so i was the person they called when someone wanted to borrow work i would get it ready somebody was coming in to do conservation to look at stuff i would get that ready working with the galleries get that ready and um you know because we were calling in appraisers that kind of thing and then they had um they built a little um not a little but a, a gallery space 
in that 305 office, right? So that was the whole grand plan was that they were going to have the gallery space. They were going to have the artwork stored in the back. God, I can't believe we were doing that. And um, and the offices. And so they had a gallery space and I was um, creating exhibitions from the artwork that was stored um, on the premises. And, and this all belonged to... The foundation. This belonged to the foundation. Okay, so just to finish that up. Yeah. So um, I was the one setting up the exhibitions, um, and I was, you know, basically doing the um, the loans and, and interacting with, um, you know, appraisers, conserv- conservationists, and um, also um, there was a moment when the Archive American Art came in and they wanted to look through things, so we did that. And Sheila was taking care of the licensing with the licensing agent, um, Vaga. And then when I came on in 2005, part of, the, part of the thing was they were kind of phasing Sheila out. They were phasing Evelyn out. Um, and they needed staff. And I could no longer give that amount of time because I was teaching at, at NYU. I couldn't give that amount of time without getting paid. I was going through a divorce. I was like, I, I have to, I, I can't help anymore in that way. Um, and then um, Grace asked me to stay on and to officially come on as a program person. So um, I did that. And um, and what was the programming? This is the Sinke? Right. No, not yet. Because Sinke was something that we took over from the Sinke Gallery when Ruth Jett, was quitting, you know, and they were dissolving. And so we took that on as a program. But at that time, the person who developed that program um, was um, the education officer, which was Pam Ford. And so she did all of the, you know, she designed that Sinke program that we do. And um, my programs were mostly workshops for children we were doing we were working on the curriculum a little bit and um the programs of the gallery so um those were minimal programs that we were doing and um and we also were working on a traveling exhibition um and this was pam me education person everybody was working on that and it finally um, got off and running. It was a major traveling exhibition of the prints. And, um, and we did the first stop in 2008 or 9, 2009. So, um, so, that's, so, so that's that. And then in 2010, Grace announced that she was leaving and we had a very skeletal staff. And so they wanted me to take on the directorship and I did not want to take on the directorship. And um, so they convinced me to, um, to do a, a, a co-directorship um, with Joanne Bryant-Reed, who was on the board at the time. She stepped up and that's history. It, yeah. That's where we've been ever since. It was supposed to be a temporary situation, but it actually worked out pretty well. So do you have a division of roles she takes care of what and you take care of what yeah 
Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> um, I think it's developed over the years. I mean, it was clear that that I had a desire to primarily work with the art and programming because I was already programming. So Joanne was using her skills of administration. She was coming in. We didn't have any. We had one staff member who was the receptionist, Sheila. <laughs> um, but, uh, well, we had other staff too at different times. But her her skills were in budgeting, finance. You know, she worked on Wall Street for a while. So she was management. And, um, but I was doing pretty much, you know, anything to do with the art. I was, um, we didn't, we no longer had the condo when, when Grace left, by the time Grace left, we had just moved up to Harlem. So we just So you sold the condo. They sold the condo. Yeah. And, um, and so, and that was during 2008. So we, you know, we didn't do that well, but it was, it definitely had a profit. Um, and E.T. Williams was the chair um, of the board at that time. And um, so Joanne primarily now does finance. She A little bit has spilled over because, um, because Joanne has learned and she's become more involved and because we've had very... Sh- short staff. I don't want to say short staff. We just don't have a lot of staff. <laughs> and so um, I can't do everything, but um, I do I do everything concerning the art. And then we work together on projects. Uh, so um, even our programming, we work together on the planning and developing and um, some of the, you know, um, some of the actual um, implementation, you know. Um, and yeah, and so I'm still the one who will train educators. We, we, we used to train educators to go into the schools and teach our curriculum. Um, I'm usually the person who will lecture um, and go out and um, give talks on Bearden. Sort of the spokesperson. So she'll handle um, you know, some of the contracts and, and things like that. And right now, she's very um, involved in the archives, which we are shopping around, and um, involved in a lot of the talks of direction, because she's still a board member, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, she still, you know, does board work. So it works out very well. I mean, we could always use more hands, um, you know, especially now with, with me working on the catalog resume, we really could use a lot of hands because I'm realizing that I, I don't get to do that much right now. Um, so we are, we're, we're looking to um, increase staff. But now with the COVID thing, it's that, you know, do we get an office? Do we not get an office? Is it going to be worth it? And, you know, how do you work with people who are not working together in the office, all those kinds of questions. But it's it's worked out well um, as a co-directorship. Um, and I guess that we should at some point try to write down how, how it developed. I mean, occasionally people do ask us, like, mm-hmm. how does that work? Um, but it works very well. She works with all the accountants, makes sure that that kind of stuff happens well. And, um, and I, I do a lot of the research 
which is what this job has become, a big research job, because it re really it's like people calling or people doing exhibitions. I mean, calling about things. Sometimes they're only calling about posters, but sometimes they're calling about collage that they've discovered. And then I go on this whole research, you know, thing with it. And you know, Kamara, you, <laughs> you're getting a piece of it because I'm pulling you in. But, um, but yeah, so um, little by little, it, um, you know, we, we tend to make a lot of work for ourselves. Like we've gotten involved in creating Centennial Celebration and other celebrations. We did a citywide celebration. We got involved in the park down in Charlotte, they created a Bearden Park and they needed us to develop some um, information that would go on these you know, permanent markers. So we, we were able to take those meetings together and make decisions and um, you know, and run interference with the board. There's a lot of um, you know, um, management of the board. Joanne gets to do a lot of that. So yeah, it's it it works. I, I think we should write down how yeah. it works, but it somehow it works. So what is your hope for the archive now? <laughs> Can I tell the truth? The truth is, and I'm not afraid to say, I wish that we did not have to um, give up the archives. Um, it has been a prized possession for us. Um, and it has allowed us to, you know, call ourselves a, a, a type of clearinghouse of Bearden's um, art and information. We like people to come to us. We like to say that we can give information that they wouldn't get otherwhere, uh, elsewhere. Um, and we try to get it right. We try to, there's a lot of misinformation out there or bad information, and we try to correct it. Um, but being able to open the archives to scholars to work on projects, books, Mary Smith Campbell, Bob O'Mealy, Glenda Gilmore, all of these books are very important. All of the, the um, catalogs, the National Gallery spent a long time working in the archives, and I think it gives us a lot of pride to be able to have this asset that we, you know, we we were able to get a um, a, a pretty nice size grant to get it organized and get an archivist in to um, write a finding aid, and it has just been around with us for a long time, and it's beautiful. I'm always discovering stuff in it, even though I've been through it. I'm always discovering new things in it, and sometimes it's not until somebody asks for something specific that we find it, and it's just a lot of fun. So personally, for me, I wish we could just keep it. But at the same time, it's another one of those awesome responsibilities because I look at it sometimes and I think, this could burn in a second, right? This could, how long would it take? Maybe an hour for, you know, for it all to burn down. And... So it wasn't until WBI came and they were like, oh, well, we'll you know, digitize it for you. Because that was something that we had tried to write into the grant when we were organizing it. But they didn't do digitization, digitization <laughs> at that time. That The grant did not want to get involved with that. So we were looking for money to get it digitized. 
um, because we did feel like, you know, we're not really an archive. We need to have it where other archives are. And I'm really, you know, an advocate for, for I guess, the use of libraries the way you, libraries used to be used, mm-hmm. where you happen upon the thing that's adjacent to something else because you're looking in one place and you see something else. And I wanted this archive to be in a archive, but I think many people, members of the organization, did not want to let it go as an as a asset, but also because they feel like we haven't really explored everything that we can do with it, exhibitions, books, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, but in the meantime, let's try to get it where it can be best used. But I would like to see it in a library or archive where it would be with other artists, not just African-American artists, but artists of his, of his you know, like his contemporaries, um, you know, maybe artists of, you know, New York. I mean, various sort of um, angles and usage. That, that would be my dream. So what do you think the foundation's, like, key accomplishment has been? Um, well, getting that archive organized and getting a finding aid was a major accomplishment for us. Um, also, some of the celebrations that we have been able to organize ourselves or be a part of, I think, are important, lasting sort of things because in that way we brought in the community um, and you know I'm talking about two, two specific ones. One was um, a citywide celebration that happened in 2004 when the National Gallery show was coming to the Whitney. We just we, we saw ourselves just blowing it up you know and we were able to plan for a whole year with other or almost every cultural institution in the city um, came together and we started talking about different ways that they could have programs and we do um, advertising together and um, it was very very successful because a year of planning meant that these organizations could use their own funds for their own programs but they would all be designed um, to, to talk about bearding or music or dance and art and you know, children's museum, the, the libraries, it was fabulous. And, um, and it lasted maybe two years. Columbia did a symposium on Bearden, you know, we, the symposiums are another sort of big thing that I think is um, really rewarding and long lasting. That's what I'm always trying to think of, what's gonna last beyond us. So like the, the um, uh, symposium we did in Chicago, we actually were able to get a publication out. The one we did in Pittsburgh, we weren't able to um, because of funding. But I, I, publications are something that, again, um, you know, adds to the scholarship and lasts a long time. You know, and so we're very proud of that book that we were able to get out in any books that we're involved in that we can help facilitate. You know, retrospectives that we can help facilitate. So I think that those are some of the things that I, I think we're particularly proud of our traveling exhibitions that we've organized. We get involved in the larger shows, but ones that we put together ourselves, 
and we follow up with programming. I'll go and talk, or we do educative workshops around that. Those are some of the things I'm really proud of, and I things that I think that we do well. Um, you know, some of the educational things that we do in the schools. There are so many organizations in New York that do it better than us and have a greater impact. We can do one or two schools in Harlem at a time, but we're limited by funding because we make them free by funding and you know being able to train the artists where they can go to studio museum, make more money, and they have a larger scope and coverage. You know, so that we and we and we keep our public programs and some of our scholarships and things to a minimum. Because unfortunately, we just don't have, we can't do the impact, can't have the impact that we can with um, these other things, like a symposium. I wanted to ask you, is it a challenge to advocate or try to perpetuate this legacy of a Black artist? Do you come up against any difficulties there? Well, um... Not so much with Romare's legacy because you know, it's undeniable. Um, but one thing that Mary Smith Campbell said that I find is true as, as we go on. She said this in like 2004 and it, it, I, I, it resonates with me is that here we are again um, you know, celebrating him as if we just discovered him. That's what she said around the time of the National Gallery show. But she was saying that we did when he died. You know, they had that show at the Studio Museum, and it traveled to, you know, Brooklyn, and it went to several cities. And so when it was at the National Gallery, and there was a write-up about it being the first show of a first solo show of an African American artist. And how they saying this about Bearden and wow, wow, wow. It was like they had just discovered him. And she's like, why do we have to keep coming back to it like we don't have history with this? And I think that that is in part because he's an African-American artist. Because, you know, how many of those shows got to large institutions before the National Gallery? Not many. And it's the same thing about his prices. People wonder why his prices are not sky high like, you know, other African-American artists. And I said, because, you know, at the time of his passing, or even in his, while he was alive, he was not making the same kind of money from his artwork that other white contemporaries were making. And so he didn't have that, he wasn't, didn't have that amount of wealth to leave in his will. So... You know, that's one of the reasons why we struggle as an institution, whereas any of the other ones I don't need to name, but you know, they're wealthy institutions. They don't, they don't have to do programming. You know, they're giving money away. We, we've never really been able to give money away as, as much as we would like to make that impact. So what we do is we do free programming to try to help artists and young people in that way. I think that that's a, a struggle with African-American artists. And, but also, you know, sometimes we struggle to get funding because there's a perception that his work does make a lot of money on the market. But people are hearing about auction prices and they think it has anything to do with us. 
and it doesn't. And so that's kind of a struggle is that we're always fighting against this idea that we're a family foundation and the idea that we don't need money because we must have money, which we don't. <laughs> if they could look at my salary, they would know we're just a struggling nonprofit. And all of that's public knowledge, but I think it's the perception, you know, and, um, and so, no, I would say, usually when you say grow me a beard and people have a lot of respect, you know, um, and people, his work is sought after, but it just doesn't, it, it doesn't, um, it doesn't equal, um, you know, funding and it doesn't mm-hmm. equal higher prices on the market for his work. I mean, now they've just jumped over that whole, you know, all of his contemporaries and everything. And now they are rediscovering some of them, but some of the younger ones, you know, when I talk about younger, I mean like, you know, um, Howardina Pindell, who was younger than Bearden. So it's like that generation, Bearden, Norman Lewis, Charles Austin, they're not making millions of dollars on auction right now. They're not, they, it's, almost, it's sort of like, yes, there's an interest in some of those artists, and maybe it's because some of them are still living, which is good. I, I, I'm glad. But it doesn't translate necessarily. People aren't looking for, you know, um, to pay millions of dollars for beer. Not yet. Still. I mean, they paid, I think, you know, um, Jacob Lawrence is finally getting sort of his, his work is. And, and I'm saying all of that, but because this makes me really angry to talk about auctions, so I won't get into it, but... I'm saying all of that because I don't equate auction prices with value or, you know, it's just interest. But what I get that question a lot is how come Bearden is not getting $3 million at auction? And I have to think that it's because um, his work is just not, it's also not as available, maybe, the, the ones that would be high priced, like collage. It just doesn't come up that often, mm-hmm. but they haven't they haven't fetched those kind of prices on the market. Mm-hmm. So, so for a final question, I would like to th- I would like to know what would you want people therefore to take away about Bearden when people hear his name or when people encounter the resources of the foundation? What should their takeaway be? Um well one of the, the the one thing that I I push a lot is Bearden as institution builder and his interest in um in education and um and also you know jumping into some of those debates early on in the forties. I mean he was, you know, writing in actually 40s and 60s, he's actually trying to to tackle some of those debates about what art is, what African-American artists should be doing, that kind of thing. Um, So there's there's Bearden as the scholar intellectual. There's Bearden as institution builder, which I think is really important that, um, you know, he wanted to be involved in what other artists were doing to push everybody along. He did the Sinkay 
gallery. He was the founder of the Sinke Gallery along with Norman Lewis and Ernest Critchlow. It was something that they wanted artists to be able, artists of color, to be able to show their work. And maybe it's not as needed now, um, but you know, this idea that artists would gather together and use their resources together as, as artists who were getting shows and could lend support or artists who were curating, who had opportunities to curate and could curate artists in. Um, and for people who were going to take a little bit of their power and use it to build something for the future. Um, and I think that that is what we try to do and be at the foundation is to continue that aspect of his legacy whether we're doing it to any great extent, you know, sometimes it just feels like we're just staying afloat. But um, I do think that I would like that to be the legacy of the foundation is that we attempted to do, um, to do, to finish the work and to leave something that, um, you know, would last and possibly others will take it up. I don't know. You know, it may end with me. I don't know, you know, but, um, that is my hope, um, and I would I would hope that people feel the value in that, and um, and allow us to continue the, and support us in continuing the work that we do for them to understand that we're a nonprofit, which a lot of people don't realize we're a nonprofit. So we fundraise for everything, um, and if we can't if we don't have the funds, we don't do it. And so um, it's important that you support um, the work that we do, even the work that we do with the gallery, to manage that. Because if you're a collector and you're worried about the prices of the art and how the art's being displayed and exhibited, that, you know, you should be involved with us because we're taking that on and we're working that with the gallery. Um, it's just not out in the world by itself. We're the support. Um, and also with the copyright and royalties. So there's somebody behind the machine making decisions, and it's not easy, and we need support for that to continue a catalog resume. You know, it, it, you know somebody who has been collecting the information and can turn it over and be a part of making sure that that's something that's going to last. That's a major coup, too. I'm sorry, I should have mentioned that because that is our this that's our present major coup. I mean, we we feel like it's something we would not have been able to do without the form and function of the WPI. You know, the idea of doing it online, the idea of digitizing our materials. I mean, that's been great for us. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for You're taking welcome. the time to speak with us. Thank We've you for asking it. the questions. Yes. I enjoyed it. All right. Gave me a lot to think about now. <laughs>